0: Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Do you sometimes wish your life was more interesting, exciting, or productive? Do you sometimes set goals only to fall short of meeting them? How about your job or your circle of friends? Do you think about changing careers or moving to another state to change things up a bit? Our guest, Steve Robbins, is a serial entrepreneur, author, coach, and he's going to be sharing with us how to live what he calls an extraordinary life. It's not as difficult as it might seem to take control of your productivity and life direction, and he's got some tips to get us on the right track. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Stever.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. You know, we tell our our listeners all the time that they can live wealthy. That's the name of the show, right? Living Wealthy Radio. You have a similar expression. What does it mean to live an extraordinary life? What do you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, an Extraordinary Life, uh, it's almost trite in the way I'm going to put it, which is when you're laying on your deathbed someday, long, long from now, and you're looking back over your life, are you going to be thinking, man, that was a life well lived. Sometimes I put it in terms of if you believe there's a final exam to life, which there probably is as long as you're not you know, vaporized or something, maybe if you have a couple seconds to reflect, and the final exam probably consists mainly of that question. You know, did I did I get my money's worth out of this? Because I don't know if I go around multiple times, but if I only go around once, this was it. It was the one opportunity I had. I made the best of it.
0: So I think that's a great test. I think it was Stephen Covey who taught so many of us, right, um, begin with the end in mind. So if you're at your funeral and, you know, someone, your best friend or best someone is giving your eulogy, you know, what do you want them to say about you? What what kind of life do you want to have led? Is that where you start? Um,
1: roughly, although I don't start with the best friend. I really start with the, with the it's you making the judgment. Because this isn't really about what other people think of you, or, and excuse me, it's really not about what other people think of you. It may be about the impact you had on other people, but it's about that because that impact was meaningful to you. I think, especially in our society where we are are bombarded with pictures of Kardashians and the cover of Vogue and yada, 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 images of this is what success looks like, this is what success looks like. By the way, most of which started in the 1950s to revitalize the economy after World War II. That was when when the marketing industry, in essence, decided let's promote consumerism as a way of kickstarting the economy again. There's a fascinating website about this called The Story of Stuff that goes through and talks very explicitly about here is when they did it, here's where the marketing the marketing messages began to be formed, etc., and all we've done is double down on that in the, wow, 60 years since then. Uh, and so, so it's, the, it's the materialistic aspect that I'm not necessarily that interested in, the aspect of what do your neighbors think of you, what does your best friend think of you, even. It's more if you were to meet yourself, if you were to be the one giving your eulogy, what would you want that eulogy to say? And that's really, at the end of the day, the what the Extraordinary Life is all about. And there's a couple of, well, you know what, I think we'll, we'll probably get to that later because the answer is not always what you think the answer is going to be.
0: You know,
1: it's, interesting. I'll, I'll leave that.
0: it's interesting that you bring up, you know, what isn't extraordinary and it's not about consumerism or having stuff, right? Although Madison Avenue, um, there was a very well orchestrated campaign um, that Madison Avenue put, put out there because in order for the economy to grow, companies needed to sell stuff. And so began this wave of consumerism that is really, that's really consumed people for so long, right? They have a connection with having an extraordinary life, with having things and having stuff and owning property and traveling all over the world. And that's not what you're talking about.
1: No, it's not at all. And if you think about it, we've got to the point now where all of us are deeply invested in that, because it's only through that type of relentless consumerism that we can have what we call economic growth. And if you define economic growth simplistically as, overall, we have more money every year, then the only way that we can have more money every year is if we're making more stuff and people are buying more stuff. The problem is that a purely economic definition of what is success, which is the definition that we certainly use on the national scale. You know, what we're, we're all afraid of being in a recession. Well, the definition of recession is purely a monetary one. Questions that people don't talk about except in special interest fringe discussions are, is everyone warm, dry, and full? Does everyone feel like they have meaning in their life? Does everyone have friends and relationships that nurture them? And because we don't incorporate those into any type of formal measure, as far as I know, the government doesn't even do any sort of national survey on those kinds of questions. Do we optimize for the one thing we measure, which is money? And because we optimize for that, and because all of us want to have more of it, because that is how we as a society have defined success, we want more, which means we demand that the stocks we invest in give us a return, which means that we want the companies we invest in to promote consumerism, because we are in part the recipients of the wealth wealth that comes from that. And it becomes something of an endless cycle. It becomes a cycle where where we're defining success as having more money, and in order for us to get that, we have to increase consumerism. In order for us to increase consumerism, we ourselves have to start consuming more, because we're consumers. And we end up with a positive feedback cycle that's trying to make more and more money, but money isn't necessarily the point. In fact, I know the studies that have been done on happiness show that after you've made, I think the number is is fairly small, something like $60,000 a year, Uh, incremental amounts of income beyond that don't seem to have much effect on happiness overall.
0: And people find that, I, I I find that very surprising, right? But the studies are there. It's not about, um, you know, once you get to a certain level, more money doesn't equal happiness. You know, speak about the whole Facebook extraordinary life phenomenon. I think a lot of people look at... Um, what's going on in social media and Facebook and see their friends having an amazing life, right? Because what people post on Facebook is all their great moments and pictures where they look amazing, right? And I think there's a disconnect between what we're projecting extraordinary looks like, like the perfect Facebook picture with tons of friends and family and love and stuff and travel, and what you're talking about.
1: Uh, Very much. And in fact, I think that one of the huge disservices that Facebook and social media has done to the entire population of the world who uses it it is to quietly destroy our definitions of the things that are meaningful for people. So on Facebook, we have these things called friends that may or may not have any relationship to the emotional connection that we actually want to have with someone who we would call a friend. We have this thing called sharing on Facebook. And if you think about when you were a kid and somebody shared something, what does that mean? Well, if, if Chris is sharing a ball with Pat, what that means is Pat wants to use the ball and Pat does not own the ball. And Chris says, oh, here, why don't you use the ball? That's sharing. And a critical piece of sharing is that the person who is the recipient of the sharing have to have wanted the thing being shared. That is not what we have on social media. What we have on social media is mass exhibitionism. It's, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm going to have 20,000 people. Look at me right now because I'm amazing. There's no element of what real sharing is anywhere in that. Um, and as a result, what we call sharing and what we call communication on social media is really mass Bidirectional directional exhibitionism. And a lot of people, hey, you're told to control your image, you're told to put your best foot forward. When you're going to exhibitionist something, I'm going to be much more of an exhibitionist if I can send people pictures of amazing abs and beautiful cars and mansions and so on and so forth. And I think on social media, so as producers, we, we have this intense desire to make our lives or what we're doing Seem better than it is. Instead of actually making it better than it is, we get caught up in the movie making ourselves. And then, as consumers of social media, when we're reading other people's posts, we tend to believe their lives are really like that. I have a friend who is a very successful person in, in their chosen field. And they would put out these long Facebook posts that were these deeply spiritual sounding posts that related trials and tribulations that always, of course, led to success at the end of this 4,000-word post. But it was—it seemed like so deep and so touching. And after about two years of this, I started to realize that in person, this person didn't project any of that. In person, this person didn't seem particularly happy. That when I looked at it carefully, I was like, you know what? I believe that the specific facts, that this person is representing, about what, where they've been and what they've done, are true. But their whole Facebook presence is really just this orchestrated way of, look at me, aren't I amazing beyond belief? But because I start every post with some, something that's bothering me or some trial or tribulation, and only later do I get to the part where I'm so amazing and incredible, that, that you know, I'm hum- I seem humble at the same time. And I gradually came to realize that this person was engaging in extraordinarily elaborate social media theater. And I began to private message this friend and have conversations just to test some of this out. And I came to the conclusion that that all they were doing was, pre- was absolutely presenting the, my life is more amazing than yours could possibly ever be, every time they had the chance to do that. And I eventually unfollowed them because I'm like, it's... You know, it's it's deeply moving in a highly scripted sort of way, but I just don't believe their life was like that. I mean, it was like that in terms of the description of what was going on, but it wasn't like that in terms of the self-sense of what was going on. And that's really at the heart of an extraordinary life or a wealthy life, is if you're going to live a wealthy life, you need to feel wealthy. If you're going to live an extraordinary life, you need to wake up every day with just this sense of my life is just so extraordinary. Like, this is awesome. I'm in the middle of an extraordinary life. And without the self-assent, the, excuse me, without the felt sense, the external narrative, the thing that your friend says about you at your at your wake or the thing that you're posting on Facebook isn't actually relevant.
0: Uh, Stever, I just got so much value from your explanation of, <laughs> of social media. I... I think the same thing. I just have never been able to articulate it as well as you just did, right? Because it is it is the, the one-directional exhibitionism, right? And um, bottom line, so many people are so full of crap with the posts that they put on social media. And we all know people like that and your friend that you described – probably hated that you poked him back or poked her back and questioned and got deep because you were poking holes into their their fantasy, their fable, or, or the, the novel that they were trying to put out there.
1: In fact, a couple of the questions that I asked, I wanted more detail because I was having a similar problem. And I, in essence, said, oh, this problem you just related is similar to a problem I'm having. Could you give me some advice? To which that person's response was, well, you're a smart person, you'll figure it out. And that was when I first started to get the clue that, you know what, this may not be real, or it may be overly dramatized, because they, either they're not willing to give me the details, or they may not actually have them, because this may be fiction.
0: Very interesting, and I think there's a lot of, of disconnect and dissatisfaction, and and depression might be a strong word, but um, I, a lot of melancholy for many, many people that look at social media and think that everybody else is living a great life, and they're not, and that's not at all what you're talking about. You're talking about living an extraordinary life starting from the inside
1: Yes. Yes. And in fact, that's the way that you put the life together, is you don't start by setting external goals. A lot of the times, when we're kids, it makes sense to have external goals. We want to get through college, we want to get through school, we want to get to college maybe, we want to go into a particular career that we need to have specialized knowledge for, or we need to be accredited for, or get a license for, or whatever. It makes a lot of sense to take some of those external goals, internalize them, and then structure the way that we use our time around reaching those goals. In an extraordinary life, you do it in the reverse. What matters is not reaching the goal, because once you've got your qualifications for things, you're done. Uh, you know, there's, there's no more goals that are going to be set by other people for you, unless you decide to accept Madison Avenue's goals. At that point, it's all about you setting your own goals, and a lot of people still think, oh, because my goal was to make enough money to buy my own house, now that I have my own house, or at least I'm paying making mortgage payments on the house the bank owns, now I can go to the next step and I should have another financial goal. I have a friend who has started three companies, and all three of them have been either gone public or been acquired, and what his response to do after the third company, I mean, he's worth more money than Midas at this point, is he went and started another company. And I kind of look at that and go, okay, at a certain point, unless starting companies is the thing that gives you joy, he's really just operating out of habit because he's never had any goal other than let me start a company and have it succeed, and that's the goal he's used to having. So let me propose a different way of thinking about goals. We say to people, set goals and then figure out what journey will take you there, right? Begin with the end in mind. And I want to flip that on its head. And I want to say, decide the journey that you want to take and then choose goals that will force you to take that journey. So, for example, let's say, and I can get into way more detail about this if you're interested, um, let's say that the journey you want to take is that uh, involves hanging out with a certain kind of person. Let's say that you like hanging out with really smart people talking about ideas. And that's the journey that you want your life to consist of. Well, there's a lot of different goals It will help you reach that journey. You could become a radio show host. You could become a television talk show host. You could could become the producer for one of those kinds of shows. And you would still get to hang out with smart people and talk to them about ideas. You could become a ghostwriter. You could become a therapist who specializes in really smart people and advertises mainly around TED conferences. There's a lot of different goals, all of which will give you the same journey. So instead of asking yourself, what is my goal, and now what journey do I need to get there, once you're at the point where you no longer have the extrinsic goals, like I need to graduate, once those are out of your life, ask yourself instead, how do I want my life to unfold, and what goals will produce that unfolding? It's a really different way of thinking about goals, and then it gives you lots of goals to choose from, and you just choose whichever goal sounds like the most fun. And then, and it doesn't matter which one you choose because the point isn't the goal. The point is the journey that the goal motivates you to take.
0: So isn't that what all the the <laughs> um, ancient mystics or, or philosophers have said, it's all about the journey, not about the destination?
1: Yes. And not only is it all about the journey, not the destination, I can prove to you that that's the case. And the proof is really simple. Um well, I guess people don't have each other over to look at vacation pictures anymore because we do that on our little exhibitionist TV <laughs> platform. But um, imagine that people were to have you over to show you, vaca- to show you slides from their... Or, Boy, am I dating myself. Imagine that people have, would have you over to see slides from their most recent vacation. What are they going to say? They're going to say things like, here's what I did each day. We went to this beautiful place. Then we had lunch. Then we went scuba diving. Then we swam with dolphins. Then we scraped barnacles off of this old ship. What they're not going to say is, oh, we arrived at our destination, and then we came back. They're going to tell you about the journey, parts of it. They're going to tell you about what happened along the way. In fact, maybe they never even got to the destination they were intending to go to. Maybe they said, we're going to go to Disney World. And they were driving, and they got halfway down to Disney World, and someone said, hey, there's a detour, and... They took a detour and went the wrong way and ended up at Carlsbad Caverns instead and had a wonderful, wonderful time. The point is not that they reached Disney World when they didn't reach Disney World. The point is they had an awesome road trip, and that's what matters. It's the journey. The journey is what you experience through life. The goal itself you experience for a couple of seconds once you've reached it, and then you're on to the next goal. Goals are useful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that goals are not that goals don't have value. But I'm saying that goals are not the source of an extraordinary life or, or a wealthy life. It's the living while you're reaching the goal or while you're reaching the next goal or the goal after that. It's the journey that you want to concentrate on, not the goal.
0: So is this similar to the concept of like following your passion and the money will follow?
1: Hey, hey. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things. Um, I hate to call bullpucky on this. But bullpucky, if you could follow your passion and the money would follow, then everyone would be following their passion and we wouldn't be having this discussion because it would be common sense. The problem is it's entirely possible to follow your passion and the money won't follow. Yes, and, I agree
0: with that completely. You
1: know, I, one of my passions happens to be musical theater. And I know a lot of people who are professional musical theater actors. And let me tell you something.
0: They're broke.
1: Very, 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 yeah, yes. Exactly. In their 40s, they're still living in a group house, which, by the way, is a lot of fun when they're all musical theater people. I mean, seriously, hanging out with a group of musical theater people, like for a birthday party, is amazing. But you're living that you, you you don't really have a choice if you're a musical theater person because that's the only way you'll make your the Yankins meet. However, it is the case that you can pursue money, and then once you have money you can try to use that money in a way that makes it possible for you to do something you find meaningful or passionate that's that's get money and the passion will follow the thing is though is that i know a lot of people who have made a bunch of money and they haven't made any progress with their passion so you go well you know what so they they hate their lives but at least they're rich that's if you start by following money and then hope that passion comes sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't when it doesn't work you're rich and miserable when it does work hey you're rich or you're successful, depending on how you define, define material success. You're successful, and you're also happy. But there's another way to do it. Instead of starting by organizing our life around pursuing the material success and then layering the passion on top of that, you could do it in the other order. You can start by saying, you know what, I am going to organize my life around my passion. And then once I'm making some traction with my passion, then I'm going to start finding out how can I be materially successful. Now, maybe you won't be, in which case you'll be like my musical theater friends who are following their passion, but they're broke. Now, I might add, I was hanging out with a man named Nick Corley who plays me in the musical that I call, called Work Less and Do More, which you can see a five-minute trailer of at uh, worklessanddomore.com. And uh, Nick is, I think he was 49 or 50 when I met him. He bounced into the studio. If you watch the video, he's, he's wearing a general's uniform, but trust me, when he's not in uniform, he, he was wearing a T-shirt and jeans and brightly colored Converse high tops, and he bounced into the studio. And was, uh, he had more energy than most 20-year-olds I've ever met. This man was giddy. He was emotional. He was loving his life. And I asked him, I said, you're one of the few 50-year-olds I've ever met who isn't talking about his placements already. What's your secret? And he just looked at me and said, what do you think my secret is? Every single day I get up and do what I love most in the world. So that's if you pursue passion. So if you pursue passion, you might pursue passion not to get material success, but at least you'll still be happy. But you may also pursue your passion and find a way to make it pay big bucks. In which case, again, you will be both happy and successful. So both ways of living have a way to get to happy and successful. In the case where you pursue success, and then hope you can layer meaning on top of that, the hard part is putting up with a meaningless life until you've reached the success. That's the hard part. In the case where you pursue your passion and then try to find a way to make it pay, the easy part is pursuing your passion. The hard part is finding a way to make it pay. But in both cases, you can find both. It's just a very, very different orientation towards life. So if you're a musical theater person, one of the things I did was I went around to all the musical theater people I could find, and I said, just tell me, how do you make ends meet? How do you find money? And they do everything from bartending to producing. Uh, one one guy produces TV shows every year, and then goes back to theater once he's made his yearly income for the year doing the TV stuff. Another person has a startup on the side that he does stuff for. It's it's all over the place. It's There's no one standard template, which, again, is part of what makes it very hard for people to get their... To get their, wrap their brains around is that if you're pursuing your passion finding ways to fit success around your passion there's no societal support for it every single person who does it has to invent the way it works for them but when you meet people who have tried it and found a way to make it work for them it's just wonderful it is, those are the people who are still alive as opposed to the people who are still clocking in every day if you
0: know what I mean? Oh, the walking dead, right they're they're walking, yeah. they're awake, but they're dead inside
1: <laughs> excuse me, uh, yes, and a lot of people seem to get that way by the time they're in their early to mid thirties. It boggles my mind, but a lot of it well, and it may be different with the millennial generation because millennials have a very different unemployment profile, et cetera, but people. That's the piece, by the way, that no one considers when they say, I'm going to go make my money first and then pursue the things that are important to me. The problem is they say that without realizing that the very process of pursuing success itself changes you. It can stress you out or it cannot stress you out. It can bore you. It can make you feel meaningless and listless. It puts you in touch with people whose expectation of you is the thing you're doing that you hate, but you're just doing it for the money. It doesn't put you in contact with the people who share the passion that you have, who share the excitement, who share the things that are wonderful. This is one of the reasons why I say that that living your passion and searching for money is a completely different orientation in life than searching for money and living your passion, because... It's the first step, either the searching for money or the searching for passion, that is going to start building skills and reputation and connections and are going to determine the friends you have and the community that you have around you and the things you do in your spare time and whether you have energy at the end of the day. And those are the things, ultimately, that are going to determine your quality of life, not whether you meet a certain financial goal or or even whether you, to go back to the theater example, even whether you ever have a Tony Award-winning play, for example. There's plenty of people who who organize their entire life around theater, and they just do community theater. But they take jobs that will let them have evenings free so they can rehearse. They will take jobs that enable them to take vacation time to travel if they're going to do a show in another city or something. And And to the outside world, people who are still pursuing money first, what it looks like from the outside is people say, oh, well, they just, you know, they chose a job, and their job happened to be flexible enough that they could do the theater around it, and that's too simplistic. That's not actually what went on. What went on was they committed to doing theater, and their job is their hobby, and when you think about it like that, it has very different implications for how you choose a career, how you find jobs, et etc., et cetera, than doing it in the other direction.
0: Wow. It is such a different way of, of looking at designing your life, right? Um, so, so different. What skills would you recommend our listeners to to think about developing in order to maximize the chances of, of living this type of life? I mean, is it too late for anybody to start?
1: Uh, well, no. And, in fact, I did a three-year experiment a few years ago where I lived this way because I didn't live this way for the first 40-some-odd years of my life. And then I did it with the help of my coach, my life coach. I, my Michael Neal was his name. I designed a three-year experiment and lived it, and explicitly tried living this different way. And then at the end of the three years, I said, "Oh, well, what happened during those three years?" It was pretty amazing uh, what happened. But uh, so it's never too late to start. And I think that, so. One key skill is noticing whether or not you're passionate about something. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to say because people say, "Well, don't I know what I'm passionate about?" From what I can tell, oftentimes no. One of the things about getting older that I've noticed is that as you get older, it becomes less about deciding what you want versus noticing what you want. Oh, whenever I do this activity, I seem to be smiling and deeply engaged with people, and I feel good. When I do this other activity, I'm stressed out and I hate my life. Huh, I guess that means I prefer activity one over activity two. And a lot of people don't ever ask that question. They don't pay attention to what they like and what they don't like. So one skill you need is the skill of being able to notice what is bringing you fulfillment and happiness in the moment and what isn't, so that you can do more of that less of other things. If you are truly committed to living from your passion and then finding ways to fit success around that, but you are in a field, either you're not in a professional field yet or you're in a field that doesn't give you the flexibility to do that, then one of the things you need to become comfortable with is hustle. And hustle is, hustle is a combination of a lot of different skills. Let me tell you a real-life example of, of something that happened. When I was first getting into theater, I met a woman named Missy Pyle, who was in a Broadway, uh, an off-Broadway show called Bear. And I was interviewing her for my podcast and doing some PR. I wanted to support the show because it had some real emotional meaning for me. And I was doing an interview with her uh, for my podcast to help promote the show. And in the interview, I asked her what it was like to live in an industry and to be working in an industry where your show could close tomorrow and you have no advance notice. One day, the producers just come down and say, well, we're not making our numbers. The show's closing at the end of the week. An hour after our interview, they announced that that her show was closing at the end of the week. So... I called her back and I said, Oh, isn't that funny? Look at that. We just discussed this in the interview. Tell me, what are you gonna do? You know, now you have all this time because she was originally slated to be at the show until the end of June and this was the beginning of June. I said, So now you have like three and a half weeks that you can just kinda of hang out, wanna grab lunch sometime To which her response was, Oh no, I've already lined up two gigs uh two gigs in LA so I'm going on to LA tomorrow morning and I'll be doing this acting job there and then I'm gonna be doing this music concert uh, elsewhere in L.A., and then I'm going to fly back here to do the one-woman show that I already have scheduled for the end of the month that I was going to do either way, and then I'm back to L.A. to do my next thing. Now, think about that for a minute. She had, she, as far as she knew, had the rest of the month where she was going to be doing this show eight times a week. On a day's notice, she managed to turn around and put together a bunch of gigs to compensate for the fact that her show closed. To her, this was just the way life works, because in that industry... You have to be hustling all the time because things fall through with no notice, and you just need to be able to piece something else together on no notice. And that is literally her way of life. It doesn't even occur to her that there's any other way to live. If one of my corporate friends had lost their job with no notice, it would have taken nine months of therapy just to get them to walk <laughs> outside their exactly. bed. Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: Right? Never mind finding the other job.
0: Exactly. So, Absolutely. You know,
1: so that's, that's what I mean by hustleability. And as far as what hustleability consists of, it consists of maintaining a strong network of relationships with people who know what you can do and what you're capable of. It means continually honing your skills, and, in fact, developing new ones so that when opportunity of some sort comes along, whatever the opportunity is, you likely have some skill set that you can contribute to the opportunity to turn it into a money-making opportunity for you, as opposed to just something where you look and go, oh, if only I had skill X, then I could take advantage of this. You need to be able to recognize opportunity when it comes along, and then you need to be able to have the flexibility to actually jump on it and execute. So in Missy's case, she knew, she knew who to call, or at least who she thought she, she could probably call to set up these other gigs for the rest of the month, but furthermore, she actually picked up the phone and made the calls. And I don't want to understate that, because one of the big pieces of jumping on opportunities is you actually have to jump. You can't spend all of your time thinking about it or pondering or going, what if I jumped? It's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's put up a safety net, jump, find out what happened, and then if you don't like where you are, jump again. And then the last thing, which is something a lot of people in the entertainment business and the theater business don't have, is understanding deal structure. Because when you're jumping on opportunity, it's not enough to help create a big pie. You also have to know how to negotiate in such a way that you get a piece of the pie that you help create. And that's, a, again, a whole topic in and of itself.
0: Well, we are almost out of time, Steve You're perspective is so refreshing, and I think there is so much value in the information that you have to share. Can you um, let our listeners know how they can find you, your book, your information online?
1: Absolutely. You can find me at Stever Robbins, S-T-E-V-E-R-R-O-B-B-I-N-S dot com. Right now, the site is oriented around CEO stuff, but I'm actually going to be repositioning it to be about living an extraordinary life in the coming months. Uh, And if you go to steverrobbins.com forward slash LEL, which stands for Living an Extraordinary Life, you can hear the talk that I gave at Harvard Business School about this a couple years ago, which was based on a TEDx talk that I did.
0: Excellent, and um, of course, on livingwealthyradio dot com, we will have the recording available for downloading for our listeners. You know, life may not be going the direction that you want, but that doesn't mean you can't turn it around by implementing just a, you know, a, a different mindset, a different way of looking at life than what we've been taught, different perspective. And, um, we, we may feel ordinary, but I don't think that means you have to live, um, you can't live extraordinary lives. Right. And Stever, you've got a a great perspective, obviously, uh, something that you've figured out and you're living, it sounds like, and you've got a whole network of people that have figured it out as well. And thank you so much for sharing and making this part of your life's work today.
1: My pleasure, and I hope that the people listening also have found something of value and go away go away, and think, hmm. what can I tweak today so that my journey is more of what I want it to be as opposed to just, am I getting closer to a goal that may or may not actually give me the life that I want?
0: Certainly a lot to think about, a lot to think about. Thank you again for joining us on Living Wealthy Radio. My pleasure. Thank you. Take good care. Bye, Steven. You too. Bye. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com.